Welcome to The Real Work, a podcast about opening access to career success and workplace belonging for everyone. Presented to you by the team at Lantern Rouge. Through these community conversations, we want to learn and share how careers actually work and how we show up for each other in all manners of professions, unpacking the experiences that shape us and how we can each play a role in designing our future of work. Here is your host, Alex Lamb, an organizational psychologist and the chief executive of Lantern Rouge. Originally from Bendigo, Australia, Alexia studied music at the Conservatoire of Music, University of Melbourne, and then went straight to work at Federation Square, Melbourne's civic and cultural square, first managing the theatre, then as a program manager in events, collaborating and creating projects with the Melbourne Symphony, Australian Chamber Orchestra, Opera Australia, as well as collaborating with sports and cultural festivities such as the AFL, Australian Open and the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Since then, Alexia has curated and produced several festivals, orchestras and chamber music seasons, including work as a producer of a 12-month festival called The Rest is Noise, which won the Sky Arts Award for Best Festival in 2013, as well as the Summer and Winter Festivals, Meltdown and Women of the World. She went on to project manage the European Youth Orchestra Ferrara Chamber Academy in 2018 and 2019 before taking on the role of orchestra manager for the EUYO at the end of 2019. In this podcast, Alexia shares her experience of working around the world, how she secured jobs and built her career portfolio in each of the places she's decided to live, and how she's coming to value her time and make decisions about the work that she takes on. Enjoy the podcast. So, Alexia, so glad to have you. Thanks for joining the podcast today. No, thank you so much, Alex. It's such a pleasure being here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So just hearing your bio, it's really clear to me that you've had one of those careers that's kind of moved around the world. You went from Australia to Italy to the UK, back to Italy again. So can you talk to us about what it is in you that that sort of drove you to make those moves and to be an international person, so to speak? Absolutely. I actually think it began back being with my parents. Um, I grew up with a history professor dad and a musician, piano teacher mum, and there was always art, culture, ballets on the TV. Um, They were real, they are real Anglophiles and Europhiles. And I think I just, from when I was young, I just had this huge desire to travel to Europe in particular. And I, I don't think that ever sort of went away. So I, of course, love Australia and I, I, I miss it. But I just, when I was sort of in my mid-20s, I suddenly was like, if I don't go now, I never will. I wasn't quite sure how long it would be. Um, but I just then took off. And I, I think I, I just kind of, I love uh, I love everything about Europe, really. I love the history, yeah. the culture, the, for me, with the music and art, and I feel very lucky and it's, it's very special. We definitely grow up in Australia, I think, hearing about European history and particularly because, I mean, Australia is one of those places that has immigration from all over the world but big contingent of people who've come from Europe originally. So I, I definitely have that, that same as you. It was somehow planted in the back of my head that this was the romantic place to end up. <laughs> Yes, it is a very romantic uh, view, actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know. And then now you're reality on the ground, so great to hear <laughs> about that as well. But tell us about the initial move. Like, did you have work already when you moved from Australia to Italy the first time? Did you have something lined up or did you land and, and work well, when you got there? Sort of uh, yes and no. I, as I said, I, I had a, a job that I loved in Melbourne, um, but I just felt it was the moment that I really needed to take a take take the plunge and make a move so I got in touch with a Canadian concert pianist Angela Hewitt who is based um she travels around a lot but she has run a festival in Umbria Italy for around 10 years and I actually just wrote to her and said I would love to come and work with you is that possible and over sort of a few emails and a sort of semi-interview on Australia Day um, via Skype where I put my blazer on and I had my shorts on (laughs) underneath um, at the beach, of course. Uh, She said, come. So I 
went to Perugia in Umbria for six months and I worked for her and I always knew it would be a bit of a temporary stop because I, I wanted to spend some time in Italy again, the sort of the romance and being in Italy and seeing the, the culture, but I did want to go to London. So while I was in Italy, I looked for jobs in London mm-hmm. and I, I think I was lucky with the timing. The South Bank Centre at that time had done a bit of a, a shuffle of staffing and so they had a few jobs advertised and I applied and wasn't really sure if I had a chance or not but worked really hard on my application and then got an interview and then a second interview and was offered a job there. Fantastic. And so had you actually been to the UK in person? Did you meet anybody before you secured the job or was all that done remotely too? Well, I was actually, no, I did fly over from Italy for the interview. So I was I was in Italy when I was doing all that. Um, and I, yeah, the first initial phone calls were on the web iPhone and then I flew over for an interview. Again, another such a luxury of Europe sort of short. Yeah, zipping short, around. Fly. <laughs> between countries um, and so I had the first interview and had a weekend there which was also wonderful and a very good friend of mine um, from Australia lives there so I caught up with, with him and other friends and then went back and then a few weeks later they called for a second interview and I actually flew back over and then they offered me the job and so I kind of it also worked out quite well with the timing the festival that I'd been working on initially finished up and then two, three weeks later I moved to London and then started mm. straight away this job. So we often talk with people who they know they want international experience for the cultural exposure and just the, I guess, the breadth of awareness that it brings you. Um, but it can be quite hard to work out. I mean, there's always visa restrictions or, you know, local markets to understand. But it sounds like if I reflect on your experience, it seems like you've just had such a unique skill set in a very specific sector that it sounds like more of an international community as opposed to perhaps like a bigger a bigger sector like if you're an accountant or you're a banker where maybe there's more more of them (laughs) do you see that as like there's there's a low supply of people like you and that maybe that has helped some of these international opportunities open up or do you see it another way no possibly yes Alex I think I I think for me personally I I studied music back um, after school and I, I I think for me the fact that I was pursuing a career as a classical musician and then got into the arts administration side of things, I think that has been a big positive as well on a, on a basic level because I think for theatres and festivals they really appreciate if someone can understand it from mm. the job from different sides. I think that... Yes, I, I mean, I definitely don't. It's not always easy. I think I had some good timing, um, but it it perhaps was, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think that being able to demonstrate that I'd worked at festivals and with international artists in Australia and in, and in Italy, that was, I mean, that was kind of, I don't want to say that was kind of enough, but I, I suppose, yes, it is perhaps. That was your angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It sort of maybe is a bit more of a level playing field and it's a bit, in some ways it's easier to, to yeah, cross over to another country because it does, it does require the skills that maybe are a bit more transferable. Yeah, there's a currency there in your background and your exposure. We've talked to a few people on the podcast who are in sports management events and as they've said similar to you that coming from a background of having been an athlete, no matter what sport, having been an athlete, having been in those shoes, knowing the challenges and then coming into the administration of uh, events or the, or the clubs, et cetera, was definitely a benefit. Um, and so when we look at like athletes moving into management, there's usually a, a clear decision around, um, you know, have I reached my physical you know, performance level, um, you know, do I just have more of an interest? And, of course, with, with athletes, they, they have a sort of a, a shorter career <laughs> in the in the top performing space. Can you talk about your decision to move from being the artist, the musician, into the management of? Do you remember the what the factors were that were at play then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I also, it was an interesting step for me. So I was in Melbourne. I was studying at the Conservatoire of Music in Melbourne and 
I was pursuing a career as a musician and I was um, practicing and performing. And then during my studies, my singing teacher was curating a series of concerts at a new cultural centre in Melbourne, Federation Square. And she asked me if I would help out with ushering and um, checking tickets and things like that, So, which I did. So I did that as a casual job for a year during my studies. And then I'd actually just finished my degree and was thinking, okay, I now need to maybe do more study or work out what I'm going to do. And there was a job opening and I, I was offered a position as an events coordinator at this at this cultural centre. And I have to admit, I do distinctly remember that I was a bit torn because there was a part of me that knew that this would be the end of my mm. dream to be a performer because, I don't know, I just kind of knew that I would sucked in is not really the right expression, but I, yeah. I kind of knew that I would, I was choosing a different path. Um, but I thought, you know, I was young. I, it was a full-time job. Um, I also had to take it. And I do think that down the track, I would have got to this path mm. anyway. I think I, at that moment, it was a bit of a shock, but I think it would have happened down, down the track. And I don't know. I just started working, and I I just loved I loved the work, and I I think that things came naturally to me because again I think I understood it from the the artistic side of things. I I wanted to do well at my job, so I worked hard, and I I kind of loved working with people and different people and different organisations. So I think I really thrived in the organisation, mm. and in fact I got promotions and sort of continued moving along um and there have been moments where I've thought you know really should I should I have tried to keep as a performer what if but I do think ultimately it's it's definitely the right was the right path for me and yeah I, I I love my job and I've continued to just I want to work hard I want to work I want to meet people I yeah, I love it, actually. Yeah. It's often we think that sometimes there's this clear decision of, you know, it's presented to me and I, I know all my options and I can weigh them up. But just as you're explaining it, you were cognizant that there was a pathway you were choosing, but at the same time you there's a, there's a momentum and a flow. And sometimes we have to be aware to, like, halt the momentum because, <laughs> as you said, there can be a pull. But also you know, recognising that when things just emerge as well, like you moved in the direction of management and allowed you to keep this passion in the industry and close to the, the sector that you love, but just in a different capacity. So I don't know, I think it's nice to think that you can always keep reimagining even if you're not, you know, in the, the epicentre of that performance. Yeah. No, and so tell us. Yeah, no, not at all. Tell us about London. I, I kind of sidetracked you back to early career, but when you landed in London with the job at the South Bank, is it what you expected? Is it what you wanted for lifestyle and work, or how did that pan out? I don't think so. I, I, I have. I just fell in love with London as a city. Actually, I, I personally think it is the greatest city in the world. Really, it's not. It's not an easy city. When people used to ask me, you know, "Do you like living there?" I would say that. It's like being in a relationship. You have to really put in to then get out because I think that it's if you just sort of, I don't know, sit at home, the weather's rubbish, people maybe aren't so friendly, it's crowded. To go to the cinema, you need to buy it. You need to book in advance, otherwise you won't be able to go. If you see a, a top in a shop that you like, unless you buy it, then you will never see that top again. Um <laughs> You sort of have to you have to work at it, but then if you do, you see you know the the sprawling cosmopolitan city, the the different cultures, the different areas, the the beauty, the, the parks, the, the the palaces, the museums, the the, the galleries. Um, it's it's amazing. So I I really loved it actually. I loved my whole time there. I the South Bank Centre um, is a really big literally physically art centre right in the centre of London and so I felt very privileged to work there so every day I would get off the tube at embankment and walk across the bridge and see Big Ben and all the icons yes it was it was very special so that was wonderful and I I made some really great friends 
um, colleagues and they that was important to me and they were, became like my family because I didn't yeah. have my family with me. And professionally, it, it was wonderful. It's a really big... Um, it's uh, there. There are a lot of people that work there, so that was a bit of a shock because Federation Square was a very small team, um, around twenty, and there was around four hundred staff at the South Bank Centre. So um, it was a much more sort of delegated roles, and um, it was yeah. I think you know culturally the difference between also the Australian manner and the English manner are quite different. Um, how did you uh, adjust? Do you remember kind of what, well, what I, let you? <laughs> yeah, I think I had to be patient. Actually, I think I think with cultural different cultural differences, you you have to accept them. I think if you fight them, you will never you won't get anywhere really. So no, I, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's I remember just to, in, yeah. I'll share my own experience there. It's like when we first lived in in China I remember moving there as a you know really very wise and very mature 24 year old and um really thinking oh I've got something to bring I want to share you know the way we you know because our industry was fairly young there at the time I want to show people how we do it in Australia and etc and it was just so arrogant and (laughs) you know hard-headed and I remember it took me about nine months of kind of like really buffing up against um, some of those cultural ways. And we had this map of China <laughs> that I had up in, on the wall in my spare bedroom and I'd been drawing little lines of where we'd travel to and it was about a centimetre in this whole <laughs> big country. And I was looking at the map thinking, oh, China's bigger than me. <laughs> it was really this awareness moment of, oh, yeah, like they're not all going to change because I somehow came and bestowed my <laughs> wisdom. So, um, so yeah, I think it, I, I totally agree with you. I just I learned that the hard way, as you said, of, you know, what's the point in trying to change people? Just take note and be aware and work work with it. I don't know. It sounds so logical to me now, but it was I definitely wasn't acting that out. <laughs> no, no it's, no, it's true. I think for me... I really noticed it with probably like email culture and meetings. Mm. You couldn't, um, I mean, I think Australians are quite direct. Um, yeah. not, definitely not rude, but direct. And it's just the English are not like that. So just, you know, finding the right moment to say things or not being able to really disagree or um, it, it took time. Yes, and it took time to also meet people, you know. Yeah. Some people that sat around me in the office I probably said hello to some of them every single day for, yes, nine months a year and they still really didn't, um, they didn't crack and then finally yeah. they did and then we became good friends. But it, it took it took a long time. What do you, do you think they thought you were just a, another transient Australian or <laughs> yeah, to prove probably. yourself? Yeah. <laughs> I know there's a lot of them that go through. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Another, yeah, another crazy Australian that's here for <laughs> six months or something. So, yes. Yeah, exactly. And so how long were you there for in the end, the, the UK? So I was there for just under six years, um, mm. which went very fast, actually, in a way. Um, though it also felt like I was there, I felt very settled as well. Um, and I I lived with... Um, Actually, I mentioned it before, a really good friend um, that we went to university together. He'd lived in London for a long time, so I moved in with him, which was really great. He's a bit like a brother, family member, so that was was a really good base. And, yeah, I changed jobs um, kind of three times during that time, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I loved it. Um, and then it finally... Actually, for personal reasons, um, it seemed like it needed to come to an end. <laughs> my London, yeah. my London time. Your stint. Well, it's, I mean, six years is definitely a good period to actually learn. They say for any expatriate, you know, um, posting anything less than three years, and you don't really get under the skin of a place. Whereas, you know, I guess you, you more than did that. So, but tell us, you moved back to Umbria. And, uh, you know, you're starting your career again from a, from a, not a standing point because, again, as we said, some of this industry that you're in is, is very connected and international, but you were getting to know Italy as a, as a resident, <laughs> a permanent, more, more permanent resident. So how did you build up again once you landed there? Oh, it wasn't easy. I would say that, um, I mean, probably like your China story, I, 
I suppose, coming from no good jobs in Melbourne and then um, London, I, you know, people said to me, it won't be easy in Italy and the, the, not just the, the arts industry, but the whole country can be quite closed and, you, of course, you need to speak Italian um, and it's a very, um, many positions aren't really advertised. It's all about who you know and all that kind mm. of stuff. So, but I was very determined to, to crack to crack to crack it, but um, it did take time. I, it, it, I so I, I basically I moved at Christmas time at the end of the year. I think I lasted two weeks without doing anything before I was like, okay, no, that's enough. I need I need a job now. Both for my mental health um but also i've been i've been financially independent since i was 22 and that mm-hmm. was also a big thing for me actually um so i'd moved back for for a man which is probably <laughs> um, a man uh, who is now your husband so not some my husband, random yes. man yeah <laughs> yes, who i'd actually met when i'd been there six six years earlier um so we did have a long distance for six years and so I did move back um, I have to say he bumps to my mind every now and then because still he makes the best minestrone that I've ever tasted in my life my mind always goes back to that one evening we had <laughs> where I, he cooked for us and I, I always think I can't make minestrone like that it's probably like they're baked beans or something that's like bread and butter, but, it's, yeah. but it is very good no I he's actually a really good cook so I'm also very lucky with that um, <laughs> um so anyway I I don't know. I think I was quite pragmatic. So of course I, I wanted a good job and I, even from my last six months in London, I was writing to festivals and theatres and contacts. Um, Most of them never responding. So for some contacts that I was given or had, I would write six, seven times and they may still never respond. Um, yeah, so really fun. proactive and you had to be super perseverant. Yeah, yeah, I just had to just keep at it. I then finally, um, we moved to a town in Umbria of around 50,000 people and I thought, okay, well, I need to do something for my sanity and also to get a little bit of money coming in. So I actually thought, what can I do? I then um, met the, the director of the local music school and he said, yes, we need a violin teacher. So I started to do some violin lessons and being an English speaker, which is very valued, of course, they said, okay, you can teach a choir of babies and do a sort of English <laughs> choir. Like, oh, okay, fun. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote to every English school in the town to say I could do lessons and one of them got back to me and even though I had no experience with teaching particularly grammar and things like that, I learnt on the way. Um, And, look, it was not always easy, but I think I... So I did this for sort of probably about a year um, with lessons and as well as other more my kind of professional stuff started to kick in as well. But um, I think it was a good thing for me to do. It also... I met people from the community and mm-hmm. I got to know my way around the town and at least it was it was some sort of work. So it was keeping me busy and it was, yes, bringing some money in as well. So I kind of felt a little bit, yeah, I was doing something. You had your feet under you, yeah. Yeah. And so and how then, did it build finally, up? Yeah. Uh, Sounds yeah, like it's... <laughs> sorry, sorry, Alex, I keep interrupting you. Um, Not at all. Um, so I I think it was just persistent. So um, a, a contact who worked in the Rome Opera and worked in the UNESCO, um, uh, the Cities of Culture in Italy, I, after emailing him probably 10, 15 times, he finally agreed to meet. <laughs> and <Thank> we, uh, <laughs> so I went to Rome to meet him and he said, yes, okay, he would help me with... Um, some contacts. So I got involved in a UNESCO event, um, which was probably the kind of first event that I, I programmed and produced in, in the town I, I live in, Foligno. Um, and again, using the music school as sort of a, um, a stepping block they, that allowed me to use a, a theatre in the town. And so that was also a positive thing. I then, um, through 
contacts in our town, I got to know a, an orchestra and festival in um, a, a close by town and I had some meetings with them and they said, yes, come and work with us. So for I worked with um, Perugia Musica Classica and um, the festival they run, the Sagra Musicale Umbra. And then actually through them, I met an arts agency in Rome. So I then started to work with them. So it was all about contacts. Um, yeah. it, and again, it was not, it definitely wasn't easy. It took time. It took many emails and phones, phone calls. Some of the, the work, the projects worked and some didn't um, because, again, I think culturally they weren't, they weren't the right, they weren't the right fit. Um, yeah. And then I finally, I felt like it was in, I think, 2018 that it really sort of, so I guess kind of two years of doing more smaller things and then finally sort of building up things, I feel like it really started to to, to kick off. And I started doing some work with the European Union Youth Orchestra who, with Brexit, relocated their offices to Italy. Um, and that was a really fantastic organisation and um, I actually knew some of the team because I'd worked with them in London. So I started working with them and they introduced me to a, a conductor in Italy, um, Ezio Bosso, who very sadly passed away a few months ago, but he, um, I worked with him for a year and that was a really wonderful experience. And also through them, I got approached to be the artistic director for a festival in Bologna, which um, was meant to be on in a few weeks, but obviously with COVID it's not happening. Yeah. But um, that will happen next year and I'm sure that that will continue as well. So I feel like I, it finally... You cracked it. <laughs> it all kind of happened. And yeah. then it's now too much probably, but it, yeah. it's time and I think just persistence really yeah and so can you remember the mindset you had in those first two years when you landed on the ground in Italy and you're just trying to work things out like we were talking about persistence but can you remember how you were thinking or feeling or like trying to approach it there must have been highs and lows so yeah there were real highs and lows actually I I remember that I was very I was emotionally up and down I think um I don't know, I, I think I'm someone that once I make a decision, I try not to think too much about the past and I did that when yeah. I left Australia and in London. So there is a part of me that is very good at saying, okay, no, you're here. Let's make it work. Um, yeah. But it was hard, I think, because I'd also, I felt that my, I mean, I still was was young I still like to think that I am still young um, yeah. but I was it was my early 30s so it's definitely not so old but I suppose I felt that I'd been working in you know kind of serious jobs for over 10 years and you know it, it can be discouraging when you you know that you could really that you, that you could help an organization or give a fresh perspective um, and that, that's just that people aren't interested, um, and it, it it was tough. So I yeah. I think just um, yeah I was really up and down, um, but I tried I just tried to keep going. Um, yeah, and I I think I was lucky that my husband was was always really supportive, and I think that I as I was good with. The connections, and I think it's something that you need to be anywhere, not just in Italy, but I, yeah. I do think I finally cracked it because it, all these connections kind of lined up and yeah. I just kind of you need to cultivate those. And you It's need a really to, good insight. Yeah, I completely agree because we so often hear people who, as I said, they want the international experience. Sometimes they're ready to take the plunge and so they jump, you know, into that new culture and get this real frenetic energy at the beginning of what I would say is like a more traditional job search of trying to look on job boards or wherever jobs are posted in that, that place where they're, and then reject, reject, reject. It can be really, um, you know, really hard, especially as you said, you've come from somewhere where your identity maybe tells you, hey, I'm a professional, I'm valued, I do a good job. Like why won't anyone listen to me? And we often say, 
You have to network. You have to because you find slipstreams, don't you? It's like you send out yeah. 50 emails and you follow those people up and you can't be perturbed by the fact that 49 of them didn't <laughs> come back. Um, but finding those glimmers of hope and then following those, like mining those seams. But I think people don't think about it in terms of like a sales job. They think about it in terms of a job search, which is uh, probably sounds a little bit, you know, of a nuance, but you really are going out there selling yourself <laughs> and you can't afford to not be creative about how yeah. you get yourself out. Yeah. No, definitely, Alex. I think that's exactly it. You have to be creative and open-minded and actually I think not. you can't be too proud. I mean, no. I, yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, to be honest, I didn't want to be teaching English lessons um, while I had been after I had worked at, you know, the biggest art centre in Europe and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, sometimes you need to do these things. Um, and my work at the music school definitely opened up other other avenues and you, you kind of never know what where things may, may take you. Exactly, and yeah. I think also you may need to do some work with, you know, less pay or even no pay if you know it's just for a certain period um but yeah you do you need to be creative and open-minded and stay in touch stay in touch with people I I remember also during some periods where I was feeling really discouraged that I I got back in touch with contacts in London that maybe knew people in Italy and you know I guess just still it's it's the networking and yeah yeah exactly and seeing where it leads you and it's in some ways it's a nice analogy to your first decision about do I go you know performer or do I go into management you just you have this sense that okay if I start following that direction and chase down every lead and say yes to those jobs it'll start to accumulate um I still need to be conscious that I'm not getting pulled away from my core mission <laughs> so to speak but you know things evolve and they do they do flow if you're if you're keeping your eyes open for the I absolutely believe that um yeah you know i think if you love i don't know if you love comedy you if you can get a job volunteering or work in the bar yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. i mean you you honestly that that really may lead somewhere and i do think that managers and bosses they notice people that work hard and show initiative and probably yeah. now more than ever you know, companies want people that just are hard workers and that are flexible and yeah, especially be... right now when so much of the world is mm. trending towards gig work and and yes. project based work. Of create your own project, create your own job. I'm not saying everyone needs to be an entrepreneur, but if you can think about your career in terms of a portfolio, which is what I'd reflect back to you on, where I think you've landed with several different projects. There's no yeah. one employer. It's like there's these different things on the go and they're seasonal but you've got a total portfolio that adds up to, by the sound of it, more work than you can <laughs> hold at the moment. But if I was starting in a new place, it's like how do I think about what I'm trying to do? What are the skills and the connections that I need to have? And are there other ways for me to get it? Not just a job that someone awards me. Could I start a blog? Could I, yeah, as you said, go out and, you know, contribute in a, like organise the networking event, not just attend it? Or <laughs> like how do you create those own opportunities for yourself it's yeah take that's what employers are looking for is you make your own fortune and so tell us now like now that you you do have your cup full (laughs) how do you manage that how do you think about um how you prioritize what you say yes to what you say no to where where's your thinking right now it is a good question and to be honest i think i still need to do some work in this area um i think after Actually, this whole freelance, essentially, uh, sort of working regime still feels quite new, even though it's now been four or five years that I've now been back in Italy. Um, I'd always had full-time jobs before that. So it, I, I think on a, on a basic level, that's something that uh, it's, it's, I found hard, actually, knowing how much time you should spend to different things and then making sure you're looking after yourself. So... I think finally I feel in a actually really good place in my career in Italy. I feel like um, through the, the, the projects that I've been working on, um, which 
kind of I'm now they sort of roll over each year so it's sort of the same people I'm working with all the time um I don't know it's made me realize how precious time is and I I think it's just made me realize that it's it's not worth working on things that if you don't really want to and yeah um because it just you will you will ultimately probably not do as good a job as you as you could um both if you don't have enough time or if you're actually not so interested in it. And I think also on the, the sort of financial side of things, it's also, um, you know, realising it's, is it worth, is it worth doing it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I, this year I have actively actually cut a few things out of my my portfolio because I just mm-hmm. thought I, I just don't have time and it wasn't easy and as I kind of sent the email or waited for the response I did feel a bit guilty or yeah especially weird. when it was so, so hard one as well with the previous story the first two years it <laughs> yeah. could be really hard yeah <laughs> oh exactly and of course I still have a slight bit of fear that oh god what what if that's I've messed something up but I don't know I've just come to realize that I I think I'm at another moment where I really need to think a little bit more about myself and my family mm-hmm. and my and my time and yeah. um yeah and it's just about about choosing about choosing more yeah it makes sense in some ways that's the flip side of being a, in a portfolio is that the decisions you make just come down to you there's no <laughs> right or wrong there's no um sort of industry standard so to speak it's just how do you tune into your self-governing you know decisions of yeah which is really hard but it sounds like you're yeah working it out (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying I'm trying I've actively I've I think this year even prior to COVID I just thought I need to I'm doing too much so this this year is the year I have to change some things so um I feel like I'm in the process um I need to still get through probably until January and sort of finish off some some things, but I, it's for me, it's mostly about time, and I just um, I need to realise that I <laughs> don't have time to do everything really. Yeah, and it's just not it's just not worth it really. Actually, it makes me too stressed, and it's it it's was starting to affect other things in my life um, with my um, just general well being and being too yeah. stressed being able to sleep and all that sort of all that stuff um and I I just don't think that's worth it anymore so no it's a real consideration I definitely feel the same way and I know you've got a little person now too so in amongst all of this you know career building you managed to 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 become a mum too and how does that factor into this decision that you're making around yeah decisions about what projects to take on yeah it's um so yes I have a little boy who's two and a half um and yeah I mean he's a big factor um I think the work that I now do I largely do it from home so in some ways that's fantastic and flexible and I I can I can sort of manage my time um but it does mean that at certain times of the year I need to go away and sometimes actually for a few weeks um which is really hard so no it I mean definitely the the family um I want to be I mean obviously I want to be the best mum I can be and be really really present um and you know I one thing that I tell other new mums when they when they asked me, I don't know, I, I had so many friends and colleagues tell me that, you know, once you have a baby, you won't you won't want to work or you won't want to do, I don't know, get dressed up and things. And I, I guess for me, obviously every mother has a different experience. I just actually think that that's completely wrong. I couldn't possibly yeah. before. <laughs> I mean, I, I, this desire to work has not gone away at all. Um, I, of course, know that, you know, some things in your life need to change, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you yourself have changed or, you know, you can't wear high heels to walk around the park perhaps, but you still may want to wear them at other yeah. times. So yeah. um, I don't know. It's That is also a big, uh, a big balance that you need, I think, to really listen to your body and yourself. And I don't get that right all the time, but I'm, I'm trying. 
but it's it's also I think it's for me it's been interesting that I've also it hasn't diminished my desire to to work or pursue things as well um so it's just juggling it all. yeah it's a question of identity too isn't it it's um you had a working identity <laughs> prior to having a parent identity and they come together as opposed to being you know replaced I guess one one for the other for some people and I I don't begrudge anyone who wants to be a mum as their their primary kind of um you know because because there's things that I think are fun about it that I just wasn't expecting and things that are completely pleasurable and then as you said like this if if you have a job that you love then (laughs) that gives you pleasure and identity you know and hopefully things apart from kid and job too (laughs) because I know we we often define our identities by our work and our our family but you know of course there's there's whole other spectrums even if you weren't getting paid just to be able to get up get dressed up and walk around in your high heels independent of that being part of work is you know this is me this is who I am so yeah it's a completely understand what you're saying but as you mentioned you have just come back from you know one of these trips I think you said you're away for about two weeks in Austria so tell us about that project um, so I've actually, uh, I got home a week ago, um, so with the European Union Youth Orchestra, so I'm the, the manager of the orchestra, um, it we sort of unbelievably, obviously this year, like every other arts organisation, we've had everything cancelled, the spring tour, summer tour, we've done digital things instead, um, but we probably back in July, um, a venue partner that the orchestra has worked with for many years in um, a place called Grafenegg, which is just out of Vienna. Um, they got in touch and we spoke and we said, why don't we try and have a 10-day residency in, in the autumn, in October? So we said, let's let's try and do it. So um, over the last few months, we've been um, working on this. So it was an orchestra of 85 musicians with the conductor Marin Allstop and the main sort of impetus behind it was also to record for the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. Um, Mm -hmm. So originally the plan was the orchestra would go to New York to play at the UN for this event. Obviously that didn't happen, but we said, why don't we still try and do this together? Um, And I have to say about two weeks before, probably in September, when the situation in Europe was starting to get bad again, I thought there's just no chance how can we bring these musicians everyone from a different european city together but we did and so we had two weeks in in this place grafenek um it was very very special and for many of the young musicians it was the first and last time they've played in an orchestra this year actually and it was very very emotional when we had the first rehearsal with the full orchestra people were there with tears streaming down their faces oh wow um it was for us the sort of management team it was it was stressful we had every three days over the the two weeks 10 days two weeks we had a COVID test to make sure that there would be no issue with that we all lived in a bubble we had we had dinners at a closed restaurant every night for lunch we had sort of a lunch pack which was left and so the caterers didn't come in contact with us um wow the logistics uh, are just <laughs> so yeah, many things to <laughs> organise. It was, and of course, in the lead up, as so many airlines are in trouble, um, we probably had sort of five to ten flight cancellations a day. So then we're rebooking uh, on different flights. Um, but it was it was amazing and actually very 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 special. So we had we had that, and um, I think you know when we when we look back on this, I think it will be probably thought we were crazy to try and do it but it was also very special so yeah yeah so I for two weeks um, the orchestra was there for 10 days and we got there a couple of days before so I was away from home for two weeks and that that was not easy at this time being away no. from family and everything but um again I'm lucky with the supportive partner that um he knows that you know that's it's part of my job and it's important to me and we we make it work yeah it's, um, I can imagine for the people in the orchestra, it must have been, a, as you said, crying and, and having that moment must have just been an overwhelming feeling of it's live, it's real. It's, um, I don't know, what, what do you think was going through their minds? Was it because they could feel the vibrations of everybody else or is it because? Well, I think all of that. I think for them, 
they've been sitting in front of a screen like most of the world for six, seven, eight months now, and yeah. they it's it's their their life. And to be on a stage also with you know quite a big orchestra, some of them may have been able to do smaller things um, during these sort of quarantines and lockdowns, but an orchestra of eighty five, um, I don't think any of them would have. And to be there with this in this theatre in in sort of one of the homes of the orchestra as well, um, playing Stravinsky's Firebird, which is this incredibly emotional, beautiful piece of music. Um, it was it was amazing, actually. It was mm. it was very, and I think it was very moving for everyone. And I think for them, there was just so much joy and happiness actually yeah that's good yeah it was tears of happiness that's good how does it work with them practicing on zoom I mean there must be delays or I don't know if they can hear each other or get the timing right like how does that work no no exactly it's um it's not great really so um just for those reasons you just said that there are delays often the sound quality is not great so being for a musician Mm. Kind of the number one, um, and you just can't, you just can't produce a good sound. So, I think that's also been really discouraging for a lot of young musicians yeah. that have. Uh, I think they've had they've been forced into a a real uh, sort of professional crisis, even without possibly beginning their professional careers um, yeah. to really look at. You know, is this is this a viable future? And that's I think very very sad. Um, yeah. I mean. All musicians understand that they need to be flexible and do different things and maybe teach and maybe record and do different things. But this year it's been very, very tough, as, as we all know, for yeah. musicians and, and artists. Yeah. And some as an industry. have actually yeah. have given up. Some have said, I, I just, it's too hard, I can't do this. Others have gone back to university to do other courses. I know some mm-hmm. of the musicians from the orchestra have actually in this semester that's just sort of begun, they've gone back to do something completely different like psychology or something like that. Um, mm. So we'll, we'll see. Um, but, no, it's um, many, I know many universities and conservatoires are trialling different software um, that is meant to be better than Zoom or some of the more sort of meetings-based. But I think it's, it's of course, also dependent on an internet connection and if many yeah. of them live in the country or um, in a house with both their parents working and um, it's been, it, you know, it's been emotional hearing people's stories about that as well. That some have said, you know, my my parents have both lost their jobs during this time so I'm at home and I can't, I don't have time to practice anymore or I've needed to get a waitressing job to pay for my studies next year. I mean, it's, been a tough year for everyone as we know oh it's just i know like financially it's absolutely like from the from the arts industry perspective and just keeping people afloat is that's primary isn't it making sure that people have what they need but then also from the artistic perspective just having the time for the for the disciplined practice (laughs) because i'm sure practicing by yourself goes a certain distance but then practicing with other people must just have a whole other element to it and they're just not getting yeah. that professional development so to speak yeah. from a because it's, uh, it's really tough let's see what comes out <laughs> i hope yeah. that it's innovation and i hope that it's stronger musicians no i know me too i i think it, it sort of makes you realize um yeah it's the sort of what also the uh, people are battling against you know I I've got emails from 20 year old musicians in like Madrid that would say you know I live in an apartment building and the building has rules that we can only practice one hour a day and you know all that kind of stuff yeah you know juggling everything um yes I I think I think for many many musicians and from young musicians to more experienced have it's been a big reality check and I think many are trying really hard to find ways to make the industry more sustainable yeah Um, and there's been lots of discussions around that and um, you know on environmentally sustainable as well you know we need to find ways to maybe not travel to be so dependent on travel 
but then also um, I think many have realised that music is not, music online can't be it as well. There needs to be yeah. a way to be performing live. And I don't know, for me, I, I think during this crazy year, the, the symbol of many the hope of many nations, that the symbol of hope for many nations is watching an orchestra all playing at home in their bedrooms um, or, you know, the governments want musicians to sort of, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying what I want to, I'm not being very eloquent at the moment. Yeah, I, think, <laughs> I completely get it. They're part of this, they're part of the salve that helps communities you know, rejuvenate and feel hope and feel <laughs> feel pleasure again. It's such a community service and yet it's hamstrung. Like Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, really um, tough. Well, let's um, offer up to the universe some thanks for the patrons who I'm sure are keeping <laughs> going in their hearts or if they can financially. Um, and, yeah, absolutely the musicians who are still practising or finding ways to get around the barriers that are kind of limiting them at the moment because I, I do believe it's um, the arts in general is going to be part of our reimagining <laughs> of the, the next wave of, of who we are as societies. So, yeah, I can't wait to see what, what I'd love to see your work. Um, so I'm conscious of, of wrapping up and I've got a few what we call rapid fire questions just to finish off. So if I ask the question, it's a it's the beginning of a sentence and then you just finish the sentence with whatever word or words that you wish. Okay. So a good career is? Being able to do something that you love and having fun. Yes, agree. I want my 20-year-old self to know that. You'll be able to do everything that you want. Just be patient and don't get ahead of yourself. Yeah. Telling a 20-year-old to be patient is kind of like <laughs> <laughs> it's my it's my 38-year-old thing to say to my 20-year-old self, knowing that my 20-year-old self wouldn't <laughs> would be like, yeah, yeah, old lady. <laughs> um, I woke up this morning thinking about all the emails that I had to read. Um, um, but trying to tell myself, Alexia, don't think about those until you turn the computer on. <laughs> Absolutely. And then finally, my gift to the next guest is? Have fun. Um, and I think it's, it's amazing being able to offer advice to, to, to young people or to people in your life. I feel like I've always been really supported by my bosses and managers, most of them women, and I really hope I can give back to other young women as well in the future. Yeah, play it forward. I completely agree. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. The real work wouldn't be possible without the contributions of our whole team here at Lantern Rouge. Production support is managed by Mark Hayes, and our beautiful music is brought to you by Artlist. That's it for now. See you at work.